1: Welcome to The War Room. I'm your host, Bill Evans. We have a real treat this week. We've got James Wesley Rawls on board with us. Jim is a a well-known American author, best known for his survivalist uh, Patriot novel series and his new Counter-Caliphate series. Uh, He's the founder and senior editor of survivalblog.com, which covers survival and preparedness topics. Uh, He also works as a consultant, and uh, he lives west of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Jim is a... uh, uh, Reformed Christian, and uh, so we and I've enjoyed much of his books and found almost all of his resources to be invaluable. So Jim, welcome to the War Room.
2: Thanks for having me on,
1: Jim. What we wanted to get right into, and, and if you know anything about uh, the pretext of our podcast, uh, it's basically tactical Christianity, answering tough questions to uh, to uh, to the questions that that face us as the body of Christ as we seek to go forward. And of course, you're a uh, considered by many to be the guru I've heard the Godfather of preppers and um, you're certainly um, well healed uh, your books are read like how to's essentially and what we wanted to address you today in the short time we ha- have you is um, if you were standing in front of a group of, of fathers or heads of households and our elders in within various different uh, particular churches and they really are just Sort of still in the dark. I'm not saying that maybe they're coming out of the matrix, so to speak. They're starting to connect the dots and realize that we are surrounded, that we're in a hostile environment, and they want to start to, to take on a wartime footing in terms of waging spiritual warfare, and also the idea of uh, recognizing that America is under judgment, uh, right. and that they want to begin to prepare themselves to not. Not out of fear, but out of a, a concern to take dominion in Jesus' name so that they, if by the providence of God in their own good preparation, they make it through what comes, what's ahead of us, they'll be in a position to uh, survive and then to begin to rebuild. So if you just give you the floor and if you were addressing this group, just tell us what you think they need to know and some of the ABCs to get them started in the right direction.
2: Well, to begin with, uh, I think the most important step is getting right with God. Uh, For those who are not yet Christians, they need to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. For those who are Christians, but who have been backsliding, they need to get back on the straight and narrow path. Because in the dark days to come, we can only expect God's covenantal blessings if we're fully in covenant with God. Uh, We are, as his elect, expected to live righteous lives to the best of our ability, and when we do err, when we do get away from the straight and narrow path, we need to repent. We need to get, repent and relent and get back on the straight and narrow path. I think it's important that people tackle that first. And then from there, they need to prayerfully consider what they need to do to provide for and to protect their own families in the uh, difficult days to come. I've often been quoted as saying that we are living in the age of deception and betrayal. And I firmly believe that. We are going into some very difficult times as our nation is coming under judgment. And the best that we can hope for is that God would would extend his mercies to his covenant people individually, as families and as church families, because the rest of the nation as a whole is going to be under severe judgment and we are going to reap the whirlwind for many, many years. This nation has turned its back on God and our nation is, uh, gradually, uh, in fits and starts sometimes more <laughs> rapidly than we'd like descending into tyranny is descending into absolute moral, uh, decay and into despotism. We need to recognize the times that we're living in for what they are. We need to consider ourselves like the prophet Jeremiah, and we need to be uh, outspoken, we need to be fearless, but we also need to be at the right times, circumspect, and that's one of the most difficult issues that we will confront, confront, and that is, the Bible teaches us to be wise as serpents but meek as doves. We need to know when we need to display meekness and when we need to display boldness. And that, that level of discernment is a difficult thing even for a Christian who is well seasoned, very well versed in the Bible, and who has been surrounded by godly men and women for many years. For a baby Christian, uh, that challenge uh, will be a huge one. And there, you really have to depend on the counsel of fellow Christians, prayer, and consulting the scriptures.
1: Um, Jim, obviously, um, everybody is at a different level of awareness, whether they've studied you know, what is popularly classified as conspiracy theories. Uh, certainly, there's no conspiracy that the government is usurpacious and uh, and whether what what particular form persecution and our judgment may take what we've talked about this in a previous uh, phone call whether it's you know natural disaster i know you 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 posited you know what would what would result from a solar flare uh, EMP uh, the the collapse of the electrical grid earthquakes, other pestilence, but obviously being prepared is a biblical discipline, even if it, you're just dealing with pandemics, or, or tornadoes, or flood, or or, sure. or anything that may, um, you know, affect you individually where you are. It might be very localized, but we're still called to be prepared.
2: Right. And um, okay. Go ahead. I was gonna say, it's, it's really important that we recognize it's our biblical responsibility as the heads of families to provide for our families and to protect them and it is fully biblical to store food it, it is not you know I often have people say well what about the lilies of the field verses uh, that set of verses actually has more to do with complacency and trusting in God to put you in the right position than it does about actual physical preparedness it is important that we physically prepare to match our spiritual preparedness and for anyone who fails to do that he is worse than an infidel really uh, he is a man who cares more about earthly pleasures his jet ski and his big screen television rather than providing for his family And right. Uh, woe be it to anyone who puts himself in that position uh, for the sake of temporary pleasure.
1: Yeah, naivety and sloth is no synonym for Christian contentment. Um, it, it, what do you think is the biggest problem, Jim? Do you think it, it's it's ignorance or is it sloth that people have? I think it's
2: apathy more than ignorance. Uh, a, a lot of people are really quite aware of all the threats. Uh, you just look at the world around you, the, the threats are manifold the threats are self-evident, the problem is apathy because people say, oh well, there's nothing I can do about it. But what people don't realize is that just by putting away a few weeks worth of food in storage, they will be miles ahead of their neighbors. And by putting away months or years worth of food, you are gonna put yourself in a position where from an actuarial standpoint, you and your family are gonna have much greater chance of survival And just as importantly, it's also going going to give you the capacity to help others through copious Christian charity. That's one of the themes that runs through all of my writings is the importance of Christian charity. And at the same time that you're helping provide people with safe water to drink and food to eat, you can also be sharing the gospel.
1: Jim, how do you work through the how have you worked through the ethics, the Christian ethics of um, when you have you have prepared, you have food, you have pure water and things like that. And then you're besieged by people who essentially now are vagabonds who haven't prepared. And at what point uh, does the Christian how have you uh, do well, they resist that?
2: Yeah, it comes down to a judgment call on a case-by-case basis. If it's someone who's a legitimate refugee, who's merely looking, um, who's passing through your region and who, who nearly, merely needs to be fed and um, sent on his way, then you can certainly dispense charity. Although I do recommend doing it at arm's length as I describe in my novel Patriots where you're not handing out that charity directly, you're going to do it through your local church so that your name and your location never get mentioned. That's the way I prefer to dispense charity to refugees. If it comes down to just plain brigands and looters who are passing through your area, they don't deserve our charity. they, unfortunately, by their choice and by their sinfulness, uh, deserve only our lead. Unfortunately.
1: Um, so, if you have a small congregation and they're uh, and they're interested, obviously, if they're going to be um, serious about um, doing good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith, as we have opportunity. Um, they should begin to prepare, not just as an individual family out of a congregation, but there should really be a cooperative effort. What would you say is the bare minimum for a church to begin to self-consciously set aside, and to, and how would you recommend they protect it?
2: Uh, I, I would recommend that um, if a, a church store up as much as they can— um, even church, a lot of churches right now um, have food banks. And that's all well and good. And that's for, only designed to support um, the local community on a day to day basis in Sedaka. It's, it's Christian charity. That's, that's a great thing. What I'm talking about is a uh, basically a radical step up from that in terms of the volume of food that would be stored and designed for true disaster situations uh, both for the local community and for refugees passing through the region and there if it's a church that has deep pockets they should have a deep larder to match it all it all comes down to god's providence and the conviction of the of the individual members of that congregation because i look at uh, the requirement to provide charity as uh, something that's exceptional but expected. And by that I mean, I don't think it's fair for people to, to give up their normal uh, tithing. I personally tithe more than 10%, but it all depends on what people's comfort level is. But above and beyond that, if your church is developing a plan to stockpile food to dispense charitably, and it can be very inexpensive food if it's if it's in the form of wheat, rice, and beans, for example, uh, they can be bought in huge quantities very inexpensively if they're bought in bulk. There, I would expect another two, three, or four percent of your in addition to your tithe in exceptional giving to the church on a regular basis to build up that stockpile. Now the stockpile itself should actually be hidden and uh, typically in any church congregation there's going to be at least one professional carpenter if it's a good-sized congregation and any good carpenter or sheetrock man who has a good head on his shoulders and some experience can create a hidden room in uh, a church building, whether it's um, along a row of offices or if it's in a multi-purpose building. Typically, any building is, is going to have a little bit of what's called dead space where you can make part of a room disappear simply by adding a partition. And then the access to that room might have to be a little creative but keep in mind you're dealing with bulk foods in five gallon uh, or seven gallon buckets so you need to have pretty decent access but say you have a row of offices in a church building and if you have a location at the end of a building or between two offices where you could add a partition and make two or three feet disappear uh, you can stack a tremendous number of, of plastic buckets in there if you're stacking them floor to ceiling. You could make that that little room disappear with some creative sheetrock work and a little bit of paint. And then the entrance to that room could be hidden by a bookshelf that could be slid aside to access that room. That's the, the place to store that sort of food. So even in a church that already has a... A pantry situation for uh, regular disbursement of foodstuffs to the local community at, in a in a a a, um, a regular pantry situation. A separate room should be set aside for larger quantities of bulk foods for disaster situations, and that would be held in reserve. The only part of it that would be rotated would be the beans, because Beans don't store more than eight or nine years before they get so hard and dry that no amount of soaking is going to bring them back to an edible state. The the beans really should be rotated once every three or four years. But the wheat and the rice, the honey, all that will store just about indefinitely if it's stored properly. Mm -hmm. So... My, my My advice to individual churches is to to create that hidden room either in your multi-purpose room, uh, building or in your church basement, in even if it's a uh, single story building uh, without a basement, but you just have a couple of church offices and let uh, say, a church library or church classrooms, you can make part of one room disappear pretty readily. And it will not be immediately apparent to anyone who's not a member of the congregation that that space is gone. Unless some burglar breaks into your church building and brings a tape measure with them and starts measuring the distances between doors and walls, are they even going to recognize that that space is missing?
1: I've seen uh, online some pretty professionally done um, bookshelves that are designed to cover secret rooms, uh, safe rooms and whatnot. Uh, what, sort of, um, what sort of power, obviously if the electrical grid goes down, we don't have much of anything. We're so dependent mm-hmm. upon it for running water, for light, for communication. What sort of power and what sort of communication um, technology do you think that we need to have access to?
2: My, my basic advice is to start small and, and grow it gradually larger be realistic about what you can afford both for your family and uh, also what you might need for a church building my advice essentially is to start out with a 5 watt or a 10 watt panel and battery charging trays and make that the centerpiece of your uh, power system both for communications and for emergency lighting Uh, you would have a uh, a number of six volt deep cycle batteries that are trickle charged by that um, that 10 watt panel to start and then you could gradually add more to that uh, once you get past 10 watts you really should have a charge controller so you don't overcharge your batteries Uh, ideally um, for a family you're going to want to have anywhere from 40 to uh, 4,000, 6,000 watts, so a, a six kilowatt uh, system would be much more realistic for a, a family's regular power needs. But the bare minimum, the essential, is to have power available to run a few small lights and to run battery charging trays so you always have your nickel cadmium, cadmium batteries, your nickel metal hydride batteries, and your lithium ion batteries fully charged at all times so that you can operate your radios, your night vision equipment, and your intrusion detection systems. Those are the three crucial systems. Um, everything beyond that is just niceties, okay? Granted, you, uh, you also want a few few batteries available for, for emergency lights, but uh, if you let your communications down or your perimeter security down in terms of intrusion detection systems or night vision equipment you are really short changing yourself and you're basically lowering yourself to the level of the same looters that you're going to be up against if you have good communications equipment that's a force multiplier if you have night vision equipment that's definitely a force multiplier and if you have intrusion detection systems that's another force multiplier so with those three force multipliers a very small group can operate on a combat level like a much larger group and that's where you need to be and that's why it's crucial that you at least have a small photovoltaic system photovoltaic power system with battery charging trays for every type of battery that you need
1: do you have any experience with the tesla battery
2: I'm sorry, I missed that, Bill. Uh,
1: the Tesla battery bank that it supposedly it's got a very thin profile, and I don't know how many kilowatt. Uh, it's evidently some. Uh, yeah,
2: the 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 um the batteries that I actually like are nickel iron batteries because they don't sulfate like a traditional lead acid battery. They are a little bit more bulky uh, per amp hour, but they will literally last a lifetime. There are there are nickel-iron batteries that were installed in the 1920s that are still functioning today. You can't say that for any lead-acid battery. Uh, the, and, and in terms of energy density, uh, the other really good choice would be a gel cell. But the, the life of gel cells is fairly limited in terms of their number of cycles and their, their long-term potential life before sulfating.
1: Does, uh, does does wind, is it wind viable compared to solar or biomass?
2: Nowadays, I would say no, because the cost per watt on on photovoltaic panels has dropped so low that the advantages of wind power have basically gone away. And with wind power, you essentially have a mechanical system that's po- that is prone to breakdown eventually. You're going to have a gearbox go out, you're going to have a wind generator spin... Uh, with its governor fail and it will spin out of control and tear itself apart. You'll have a severe wind uh, event that will tear apart a wind generator or whatever. Or you're just going to have the brushes of your generator wear out. So these days, unless someone is living in a really unusual environment, say they're living out in the Aleutian Islands, where there is very little sun and you seasonally have no sun at all, that's the only place where I'd recommend putting in a super sturdy uh, wind power system with lots of you know spare parts. Otherwise, for anyone in the lower 48 or southern Canada, I would recommend photovoltaics and perhaps some microhydro if you're in a, in a really good microhydro hy- situation as your primary power. Because your cost per watt and your maintenance costs are incredibly low the only thing you're going to have to do is change batteries frequently uh... if you're using lead-acid batteries and you'll need to um, keep spare uh... battery terminals and cables for any battery-based system in the long term
1: uh, Jim, do you um, foresee uh, self-conscious um... Uh, relocation. I mean, I know you you promote relocation, preferably to remote rural areas. But as far as uh, as as Christians, families, groups of families, maybe they're parts of a homeschool co-op or a particular congregation, or maybe a few small congregations. Uh, what do you recommend to these congregations as far as how do they how do they cooperate? Uh, in terms of whether it's for mutual defense or pooling their resources?
2: Yeah, I, I think pooling resources is good to an extent, but you need to recognize that under the biblical law of tzedakah, your first responsibility is to your immediate family, and then it goes out in concentric rings from there to your neighbors, to your more distant neighbors, uh, all the way up to county level, and conceivably even up to state level in the modern context. It's important that people are prayerfully consider what they need to do, what, uh, who they reveal their preparations to, and how they approach uh, working with others cooperatively uh, for preparedness and uh, also in terms of relocation. Typically, it is very difficult to get a, a, a community of people to to pick up bag-and-package and move. That's something where at most you can expect a couple of other families to relocate with you if you decide to strategically relocate to a safe region. And at my website, survivalblog.com, I describe a lot of safe regions. Uh, in the Western United States, the, the region that I recommend is what I refer to as the American Redoubt, which consists of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and the eastern half of Oregon and the eastern half of Washington, I, I think that's the safest region in in terms of uh, population density, energy independence because it's a hydroelectric exporting area, and uh, in terms of a good mixed economy that gives it the best potential for survival in a full-scale socioeconomic collapse, I. I generally discourage my readers from staying uh, east of the Mississippi River, um, in fact, preferably uh, not even east of the Missouri River, because of the population density. Once you get out west, west, the population density drops dramatically. And generally, fewer people means fewer problems. And in the context of Christian charity, fewer people means that you will at least have a chance uh, being in a, in a position to help others. If you're in the eastern United States and you're well prepared and your neighbors are not, you're probably just going to get swarmed. And under those circumstances, you won't be in the, in the position to be helping anybody. You'll just be hunkered down and essentially waiting for a die off of population in a full scale grid down collapse.
1: Do you suppose then that the probably the greatest threat is going to be from marauders and people who just were not prepared? It won't be necessarily government agents?
2: Yes, I think that is the, the greater risk, although in the modern context, we have to recognize that we have a very grabby government. We have bureaucrats who have uh, very lofty socialist ideals <laughs> who think of, uh, they'll think in terms of personal property, and they look at everything in terms of Uh, resources for the government rather than personal property That's a very dangerous prospect and we need to be very circumspect again a a individual family or a church family needs to think in terms of hiding their disaster foods but leaving their normal day-to-day charitable foods out in the open because those uh, food pantry items might be scarfed up by the government uh, on very short notice, and having a hidden reserve will be very important.
1: What do you think is the minim- the uh, minimum? I-, I know you mentioned uh, in an earlier interview I heard where you felt like the medium of exchange was probably likely going to be um, ammo. I know you favor silver, but I've noticed that you- it's hard to even buy anything with silver, and when you redeem it, you take a hit. But uh, in a, in a worst case scenario, and I maybe even maybe it's an inevitable scenario. It's just a question of when, not if. Uh, what do you recommend as the bare minimum as far as uh, the the uh, the tools of liberty, as we say, that households should <laughs> sure. Should I think maintain? every
2: household every household should have one battle rifle for every adult member of the family, one for every member of the family. Uh, one combat shotgun for every second or third member of the f- adult member of the family, and one long range counter sniper rifle uh, per family at, at a minimum. And in terms of handguns, probably one uh, f- fully combat ready handgun. And here I'm talking about major caliber. Uh, 40 Smith and Wesson or 45 automatic, preferably for every adult member of the family. That's I, I would consider that a minimum. Additional weapons would represent either barter potential or charity potential or long term replacements or multi-generational arming of your family. I'm at the stage of life now. I just uh, turned 55 last year uh, I'm at the stage now where I'm thinking more in terms of providing batteries of firearms, not just for myself and my children, but now my grandchildren, which uh, is is a little bit of an expensive proposition, but I consider it an investment in my grandchildren's future, just like um, saving for college. I think it's just as important, if not more important, because uh, unless you're breathing, you're not part of the, the solution unless you're breathing, you're not out there sharing the gospel with others.
1: Well that leads us to the uh, another question and that is unless you're well, if you're on your back, it doesn't matter how gifted or how uh, you know how godly you are if you're if you're when you're out of the fight, uh, what do you recommend in terms of uh, I suspect you've done a good bit of uh, research and know a good bit about naturopathic, homeopathic, you know, mm-hmm. spices, herbal medicines, and things. What do you recommend for the for the household?
2: Well, um, I'm a big believer in, um, of course, combat medicine is is crucial. You need to have uh, wound dressings. You need to have uh, hemostatic. Uh, you need to have like quick clot or Celox, for example, on hand. Uh, you need to be set up to suture. Uh, all all that good combat medicine kind of stuff you'll you'll need to have in hand. In terms of non-traditional medicine, or what some people consider traditional medicine, <laughs> uh, I believe I'm a big believer in valerian root as a natural sleep aid and uh, just to calm jittery nerves. It's also a natural um, muscle relaxant for back injuries. And let's face it, if people are going to be uh, feeding their families with gardening and they're, they're, they've they're been li- living a sedentary lifestyle up until a disaster strikes, there's going to be a lot of back injuries. There's going to be a lot of people doing a lot of wood splitting and a lot of uh, heavy gardening work that they're not accustomed to. So valerian root is very important. I'm also a big believer in echinacea. Um, you should be growing both of those in your garden. I have kind of mixed feelings about colloidal silver. I think it's great for uh, short-term acute uh, infections. So it's it's important that every family have at least a small colloidal silver generator and keep a, a, a decent quantity, four or five gallons of distilled water on, on hand at all times. And, and you can actually use your same 0.999 fine one-ounce uh, silver uh, trade dollars as the elements for your cl- uh, for your colloidal silver generator. Uh, they'll put out silver in at a microscopic level just as well as silver rods that you buy. Um, and of course, it's really important that you're well stocked on supplements. Uh, plenty of vitamins, uh, just of course be careful about vitamins K, A, D, and E in terms of, because they're fat soluble rather than water soluble. You don't want to overdose on those, but it's important to stock up heavily on vitamins. Try to buy double encapsulated vitamins if possible for the longest shelf life. And uh, in the long term, it's really important that uh, every family have uh, sprouting equipment you want to have a full set of sprouting jars and screens and a large quantity of sprouting seed because that's where you're going to get your very best nutritional value of just about any food comes from fresh sprouts. And that's one of the things that will really keep you healthy.
1: One of the things I keep, of course, in my truck, because I'm an over-the-road truck driver, I keep enough, I've um, got a water, I've got a pro-pure water you know, softener, You know, gravity-fed. I've got, I have got keep... Um, the uh, 90, you know, the uh, longevity type, or pr- there's various different firms that produce, you know, the liquid nutrition. I've enough, you know, because I found that, that I can even fast for a week as long as I'm keeping well hydrated and, and, and with the, the uh, nutritional products that I don't have to eat. That really cuts down on my demand for solid food considerably. also use oregano oil pretty much on a daily basis to, uh, as a preventative. You know, just to keep me healthy.
2: Um, yeah. Oh, uh, one more mention, quick mention of colloidal silver. It's really important that people do not take colloidal silver on a regu- on a daily basis, or, or even a regular basis, because it your body cannot excrete that, and it will eventually build up to toxic levels. Jim, if, when, at mega doses, it'll actually turn your skin blue.
1: That's what I've heard. Jim, when is the right time? When do we need to take nascent iodine?
2: Well. Um, If you're going to use potassium iodide or or iodate, you need to take that as soon as you hear of a nuclear event that's upwind from you. And uh, it does cause thyroid damage if used uh, on a long-term basis, so you're only going to use it for a discrete emergency. And if, but if there's a nuclear war in the northern hemisphere, and you hear that there's going to be radiation headed your way, or if there's a grid-down collapse, and uh, you get word that there are um, uh, nuclear reactors that are failing, or more likely, the, the the ponds, the stored fuel, spent fuel rod storage ponds, are going to boil off and cause a Fukushima-type event. That's when you need to be ready to take uh, potassium iodide or iodate. It's important that you keep it on hand, uh, and keep in mind that um, a study done by the um, uh, I think it was ORNL concluded that potassium iodate uh, that the the risk outweighs the benefits for anyone who's age fifty or older. So it's actually mainly for younger people that it's recommended. But it's and only in the event really of radioactivity. I personally right? use potassium iodate if I knew that there was a a tremendous amount of radiation heading my way. Uh, otherwise, the risks outweigh the benefits in terms of thyroid damage.
1: Jim, I, I would imagine, uh, and I'm on the same page with you by and large, I, I, I would imagine, though, when a lot of people... Here you speak, and here you talk about the type of preparations that you would consider to be minimum. They must think that uh, that's a that's a radical view. And of course, obviously, <laughs> uh, obviously, dis But you, I'm sure you never heard that before. But uh, and of course, as you know, many in, in evangelical America are basically have been lulled to sleep by their uh, rapture mania they're right. dis- dispensational eschatology so they think that they will escape. Yeah, they uh, think they're going
2: to get beamed up. I I have bad news for them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell do not you t- won't you tell our listeners a little bit for those who who maybe haven't done a lot of research. Uh and and this we're not going to talk about a lot of the different specific events in in our country's history that suggest that things are out of control or that the government uh, is actually the problem and not the solution why don 't you tell our listeners from your perspective, from a security analyst former army intelligent, a man who 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 really knows this stuff, how vulnerable obviously the, the the wrath of God and the judgment of God, notwithstanding but how and obviously we attribute everything to the ways and the works of God. There are no accidents in our universe as we understand it, but how 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 uh, how vulnerable is the United States?
2: We are tremendously vulnerable and we're getting more vulnerable with every passing year. There's a number of of demographic changes that have taken place in our nation that have increased our vulnerability. Um, First, we no longer have a homogeneous society. We have a uh, a society not just of immigrants but where immigrants have congregated in particular areas. If I lived near Dearborn, Michigan, I would not, I would immediately move away, for example. Uh, That's a demographic shift that is just a given at this point. We also have a society that's becoming increasingly urbanized. We have a society that has a extremely long chain of supply and now a tremendous dependence upon the power grid and communication systems to keep our grocery store uh, shelves stocked our gas stations stocked with fuel and so forth all that reordering system um, infrastructure is fully automated fully tied into both the power grid and the communications networks if the power grids go down all bets are off because we have so much vulnerability that's now built into the system that in the absence of the grid we are going to see almost immediately, I'm talking within 48 hours, looting in major cities and then within 72 to 96 hours we're going to see uh, looting in the suburbs. It's going to be an ugly situation especially for anyone who has a chronic medical condition, uh, for anyone uh, who is living in an urban or suburban environment and anyone who is dependent upon civic supplied water systems rather than their own home water system whether it is a a preferably spring water but at least well water that is pumped by alternative systems whether it's hand pumped or better yet uh, pumped with a photovoltaically powered well system. For 99 percent of the American population they are no longer on gravity-fed water systems from end-to-end they are now living in cities that are dependent on the power grid to pump water to gravity tanks and then those gravity tanks provide the civic water supply every one of those cities is going to become a potential public health nightmare and will probably be disgorging huge numbers of refugees because when the power grid goes down, those gravity tanks will go dry within three or four days. And then you're going to have cities without water. You're going to have people at each other's throats. You're going to have a public health nightmare with dysentery and all kinds of diseases breaking out. Because uh, people simply don't know to how, to, how to operate at a third world level. They, you know, We have a pampered society. People don't even know, have the common sense to not foul the water upstream of where other people are drinking. So it's going to be... A huge mess if the grids go down. The vulnerability of our society to EMP and to solar flares is also uh, becoming gradually greater and greater because of the complexity and the dispersion of microcircuits throughout our society. There's now microcircuits that uh, microprocessors that run your washing machine your dryer your toaster so even if the power grid were to come back up it you will probably have a lot of the electronics and electrical systems in your home no longer functioning Jared, the complexity the gr- of the microcircuits themselves has uh, gotten uh, tremendously greater and that the complexity of those microcircuits because of the gate sizes You know, they now pack hundreds of thousands of transistors into an individual chip. The gate dimensions of those chips keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller with every passing year. uh, It was around a micron 10 years ago. Now they're down to about a third of a micron gate size for these transistors on these chips. Each time the gate dimension gets smaller, the vulnerability to even just static electricity goes up and the vulnerability to EMP or solar flares goes up progressively. Jim, is so,
1: there is there any effective way for individual families? I've heard of Faraday cages or things like that. Is there any so, effective way to protect? Uh, it, it, of course, I guess if the if the grid goes down, you're you're not going to have anybody to call on your cell phone anyway. Uh, but in in terms of, I mean, people have their libraries. They might even have a survival library on their smartphone.
2: all you need to do is is uh, put load everything onto a spare memory stick or onto an older generation smartphone or sell, or just even an old flip phone, if it has decent memory, load all that information for that survival library onto that spare device and you're going to leave it tucked away with two chargers, an AC charger and a DC charger, wrapped up in uh, first a plastic bag, then aluminum foil, then another plastic bag, and then another layer of aluminum foil into a great big uh, sandwich, basically. If you have two layers of aluminum foil around a cell phone, you would have to be right at ground zero for it to be affected by EMP. You would be dead. All right, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to use that cell phone. You would probably be dead within minutes. Uh, you would take it would take that kind of field strength. Uh, the, the, the same EMP field strength would have to accompany, uh, you'd be inside the blast radius, basically, of a okay. nuclear bomb before it would affect that phone or that uh, memory stick. So that's, that's, that's what I recommend that people do, is, is load up. Right now, you can buy a, uh, a 32, a 64, or even a 128 gigabyte memory stick. Uh, right now you can get a 128 gigabyte memory stick for about 60 or $80. That's uh, an order of magnitude more storage than we had, again, I was talking about gate dimensions earlier. Um, that's the good, the good news is you can have a tremendous amount of storage for very little money, but you need to protect those um, volatile memory s- systems just by successive layers of plastic and aluminum foil.
1: Jim, how will people communicate? How will families communicate?
2: Well, I recommend that people have two sets of commo gear, one stored in a Faraday enclosure, and then a day-to-day set. What I use here at my own ranch locally to communicate with my family and with my neighbors is a push-to-talk system on the what's called the MERS band, and MERS stands for Multiple Use Radio System, M-U-R-S. And uh, the MERS band is is very lightly used. Uh, It is not secure by any stretch. It's still out there. It still could be picked up by a scanner. But the beauties of the MERS band are, A, that it's right next to the National Weather Service radio frequencies. So most MERS radios can also be tuned to listen on the weather service channels. And secondarily, that that same MERS push-to-talk handheld radio can also be set to a frequency that's used for your intrusion detection system. There's a brand of infrared wireless intrusion detection receivers called a Dakota Alert. They use the MERS band to send the alerts uh, when your perimeter is being breached. So the same handheld walkie-talkie that I carry would normally be set to my local MERS um, frequency for my Dakota alerts. So if I hear alert zone one, I know someone's coming in my back, back gate. If I hear alert zone two, I know someone's coming in on my side gate near my corral. And if I hear alert zone three, I know that someone is at a kind of a common trail junction. So that's from a practical standpoint, the best way for people to communicate locally. And here I'm talking within a half mile radius on level ground. I think that's an appropriate level of technology. But again, you want to have a a few spares set aside just in case you happen to have one plugged into your charger at the same time that there's an EMP or solar flare and it ends up frying that radio. The radio itself probably wouldn't be affected by anything ex- except a really high field strength EMP because it just has a very short little antenna. The problem is anything that's plugged in and charging or plugged into a phone line is going to be a t- a, in effect attached to an, an antenna system that stretches the whole continent. And anything that's attached to the power grid is going to be... A, effectively attached to the world's biggest EMP antenna. Anything that you have charging, anything that you have plugged into the phone network is going to get fried.
1: Jim, is uh, will HAM, will ham uh, be viable? And if so, what is the bare bones? What kind of cost or expense are we looking at? If, do people if, you're, need
2: in air, if you're in a, a region that is served by extensive photovoltaically powered repeaters, I would recommend two meter. Uh, most of the repeaters that are out there, unfortunately, are powered by grid power. And when the grid goes down, those repeaters are going to go, well, some of them have battery backup, but they're only going to last about a week. And then the repeaters will go down. And then your 2-meters uh, radio is effectively just a line-of-sight radio. How about a 10-meter so, CB? Uh, uh, for CB, um I think that is a good option. If you, I would recommend that you have a sideband CB, mm-hmm. and that um, you have at least one spare CB, preferably um, one that is very robust. So my um, my favorite is the old um, uh, Cobra uh, 168 series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like the classic bomb proof radio and that's also a radio that can also be opened up for out of band transmission as i describe in my novel patriots Mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, cb band does have some skip potential but it's not reliable skip for really long haul communications the thing to have would be a 12 volt powered full up ham uh radio hf and there we're talking like a uh, Kenwood 780 or 980 or whatever series. Um, I'm not a big uh, believer in the, in the throwaway, ba- Baofeng or whatever uh, handhelds that are multi-band. I don't think they have a lot of longevity. I, I'm a big believer in buying older generation radios at ham radio swap meets that's the place to be buying your gear and right now because the, the HF uh, connectivity has been so poor because of the solar s- cycle the sunspot cycle for so many years you can still find very nice quality used HF transceivers for as low as two or three hundred dollars if you look around at, at ham swap meets. Yeah. That's I think every family that where you have at least one person who's licensed should ha- have a, a good quality uh, multiband uh, but at least HF band transceiver so that you have a chance of talking with relatives at long distances I can't over emphasize the importance of the need for long-distance communications in terms of people's psychological well-being you really need if you have relatives spread all over the country you really need to have At least the capability of talking on HF to someone else in that same community who can get in touch with those family members and let you know if they're still safe and well. That knowledge alone will be a tremendous boost to morale.
1: Yeah, I've been self consciously trying to really urge my adult children to for us to sort of circle the wagons and at least get as I get older, I'm a grandfather and. And wanted to get my children and grandchildren closer by. And of course, we have to think multi-generationally as well. So, mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's incumbent, whenever possible, that 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 families move closer together so they can support one another in difficult Amen. times. And I don't think it's a question of if. I think it's a, like I said, it's a question of when. What I'm hearing, Jim, is really the term that stuck out to me out of this whole interview was third world. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> what you're what you're what you're proposing as a man who makes his living. Uh, and researches this, and have, you have contacts in high places, I'm sure. We're talking about third-world living conditions, aren't we, in America? Right.
2: Yeah, if, if the grids go down for more than a, uh, one winter, we're essentially going to be living in third-world living conditions for a for generation or more. We're going to be back to 19th century, at best, level technology, and there'll be tremendous loss of life, and it will only be the people who are well set up with off-grid power who are going to still leave lead halfway comfortable lives. Everyone else is going to have a hard scrabble existence. It, life will be nasty, brutish and short and it will only be the families that are well prepared who are going to still have a decent standard of living and who will still uh, have the kind of the, the the big picture view of the world because when 99 percent of the people are only obsessing about where they're gonna get the next meal for their family. They lose sight of the big picture. They're gonna lose sight of politics, they're gonna lose sight of international affairs, they're gonna lose sight of the big picture because they're gonna be too focused on their immediate surroundings. It's only gonna be the families that are well prepared, truly self-sufficient, with deep stockpiles, deep larders, who are gonna be in a position to A, help rebuild, and B, be watchmen to make sure that we have good government that's reestablished in the, in the aftermath of a disaster.
1: Jim, does, do you, can you tell us whether, from your background, um, if you can, do you think that government thinks that they have the technology, they've, bur- they've burrowed down, they've got their underground military bases or whatnot, do, are they of the mindset that they are going to make it through and that they will still retain control? Or do you think there'll be a, a meltdown, basically, of, of government as well?
2: On, it depends on who you talk to, Bill. That um, there's, um, There are factions within the CIA, within the State Department, within the executive branch, who uh, think that they are going to be sitting pretty because they'll have access to FEMA shelters. But what they don't realize is those shelters are actually only geared toward uh, short-term disaster situations lasting no more than a year. They're in for a rude awakening. If if they get to that shelter, they find out, A, that their whole family won't be able to stay there with them, they're going to get kicked out, and B, that the the food and fuel supplies are, are going to run out within a year or two. Uh, it is They are not set up for long-term survival. Uh, there may be a few secret Uh, bunkers somewhere that are designed with with more of a multi-generational view but the space that FEMA has provided for the vast majority of the bureaucrats is uh, woefully inadequate. Our military bases really are not designed along the lines of traditional forts. Uh, It has not been since the uh, 19th century that our forts have been located strategically that they've been even set up to defend themselves much less the the region because once America embarked on an imperial uh, foreign policy the entire focus of the military shifted toward overseas operations and the way that our American military installations in CONUS, inside the continental United States, have been configured, is purely administrative. They're not designed to be self-sufficient. They're not in terms of power or water or food. They're not designed to be even defendable uh, in terms of terrain. They're essentially purely administrative bases that are designed to support training and overseas deployment. That's all they are. So, it, I think it's incredibly naive for anyone in the military to think that their base is somehow going to become some fortress in the event of a disaster. It really isn't, because they don't have deep larders, uh, people, I, I, you know, some bases have a decent supply of field rations, but in terms of su- supplying everyone on post for an extended period of time, they're going to be out of food within six months. Jim, most we, of the spaces, and in terms of fuel and the power grid, they're going to be freezing in the dark.
1: Uh, Jim, we we you promised us sixty minutes, and in the three minutes that we have remaining, could you now? I, I want to be clear to our listeners. Uh, James Wesley Rawls appeared on us not to help him, not to promote himself, but to help us as an act of charity and the fulfillment of his ministry, I mean, he doesn't need any promotion, but we are desperately in need of having this mindset that he addresses. So, um, Jim, could you, just in the last few minutes remaining, tell us where we need to go uh, to get the information that we need?
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to, to do that. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information available on the internet, not just at my own site, but from prepper uh, websites across the board. Uh, some of them have members only areas for their most arcane information, but at my own website, survivalblog.com, all the information is available free. There is no subscription required. There is no super secret members only area. It's all there free, fully searchable. There's more than 40,000 archived articles and letters at survivalblog.com. You can use the search box in the upper right-hand side. Uh, In the left-hand column, you'll see I have a lot of static pages. One of them is titled Getting Started. And for newbies, it's really important that you look at that page first. And then for your listeners who are, are more prepared, I would recommend... To make sure that they have all their bases covered, they click on the link in the left-hand bar of my webpage that's titled List of Lists. If you click on that, that will bring up an Excel spreadsheet that lists all the categories of supplies, tools, skills, resources that you're going to need to provide for your family. And that... That spreadsheet is designed so you can custom tailor it to your own geography, to your own stage of life, uh, to your own uh, family medical conditions, and so forth, because everyone's situation is different. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, and if you start with that list of lists spreadsheet and then customize it for your family, you will be miles ahead of most other preppers.
1: There you go, folks. There's nothing... When it comes to tactical Christianity, there's nothing more tactical than surviving, <laughs> and so we want to thank James Wesley Rawls for his time. Go to his website survivalblog.com, order his books. Uh, I can tell you the Patriot series and his Counter Caliphate series is is uh, to a lesser extent, but the, the, certainly the the Patriot series is a, like a how-to wrapped in a novel, and so and he's also got several. Um, uh, non-fiction books. So make yourselves available. Uh, You know, a righteous man, he sees trouble and he he basically prepares himself for it. James Wesley Rawls, we thank you so much for joining us on The War Room.
2: Thank you. And I, I pray the 91st Psalm for you and all your listeners.
0: Thank you so much. God bless. God bless you. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions Why do the nations reign Constructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of eight distinct podcasts. Starting on Sunday, Setting the Record Straight, with Pastors Gordon Runyon, Jason Garwood, and Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Mondays, The Post Mill Report, with Nathan F. Conkey. Tuesdays, Acts to the Root, with Bojidar Marinov. Wednesdays, The Hellraiser Report, with Scott Allen Bus. Thursdays, The War Room, with Bill Evans and Jason Sanchez. Fridays, Once Dead, where Christians give testimonies of God's grace upon their lives. And Saturdays, Restoring America One County at a Time lectures with Joel McDermott. And our new podcast, No Neutrality, with various contributors. Please don't forget to subscribe to each individual podcast or the reconstructionist radio master feed where you will get all of the content we produce including our free audiobooks don't forget to go to reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator and to partner with us financially may the holy spirit stir you into action for christ and his kingdom